Okay, this morning we will continue going through the first epistle of Peter and look at we'll be in chapter 3 this morning. Now remember Peter is writing to this dispersion to uh, all the elect exiles in the dispersion in several regions and he knows that they are under severe persecution. That there are several reasons that we've mentioned before that the these people are under persecution. They are the early Christians had a reputation of being anti patriotic. They had a reputation of being antisocial, had a reputation of being cannibals, um, and many other faults. Uh, accusations had been brought against them. And so they were considered to be enemies of good citizens. And so they were persecuted. They were wrongly persecuted, but they were persecuted. Peter realizes this, so he tells them who they are. He reminds them of all the things that God has done for them. And then finally he tells them, this is the way you're supposed to live. Now, you're under severe persecution. Things are bad. You could lose your life any day. Things are going to get worse. But God still expects you to continue to do good. Even when things are not going good, He has called you to be good. For instance, He says um, in chapter 2, verse 12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. And he also says that in verse 15 of chapter 2, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So he knows that they are having a hard time because of persecution, but he says that is no reason for you not to continue to do good and to glorify God. The last thing we looked at was how Christians are to submit themselves to one another, to the governing authorities, and to their masters, their their, um, masters, their household masters, which we would use the equity of that. That that shows us how we're supposed to uh, act to those that are in authority over us. We are supposed to be submissive. Now, this submissiveness goes only as far as they do not require you to sin. God's law is above their word, so if they require you to go against God's law, you do not have to be submissive. But Christians are to live lives of submission. Now, we come this morning to chapter 3, where we're going to read about husbands and wives how they are supposed to submit themselves to each other. First of all, because of the climate in this culture and the way marriage is under attack, we're going to get a brief a brief view of the biblical view of marriage because, to be honest, this country has perverted marriage in a lot more ways than one. God instituted marriage in the garden It's a creation ordinance, and 
it, God has certain instructions for people that are married. married. Marriage, as we will read in Hebrews, is to be honored. Marriage is to be honored. And it certainly is not honored in this culture anymore. So we're going to see, um, have a brief little overview on some things concerning marriage this morning and then look at what Peter says to the wives and to the husbands. All right, if you want to turn to Revelation chapter 21, we will start there. That's always a good place to start, right? Right at the end. Don't work your way back. Yeah. Dispensationalists are noted for starting at the end, right? They look at Revelation and build their whole hermeneutic on the second Revelation. Okay, let's have Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 and 2 read for us. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. All right, the New Jerusalem, the church, the true Jerusalem. Not the false Jerusalem, not the her, not the Jerusalem that crucified Christ. Not the Jerusalem that's right now under a curse. But the Jerusalem that's coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This church is a bride of Jesus Christ. And it's nothing new. This is nothing new. In the Old Covenant, God considered Israel as his, he told him several times, I am your husband. So there was a marriage relationship between God and Israel in the Old Covenant. And then they were exiled. In other words, they separated. The marriage, they were separated. Then they came back together. They were still unfaithful. And God moved in to destroy them in A.D. 70. Their final divorce. The false Israel. The Israel that's gone. The Israel from below And now he has entered into a covenant relationship with the church, which is the new Israel, the holy city, new Jerusalem in new Israel, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for us. So we are the bride of Christ. The church is God's new bride. The old bride, which was Israel, They were faithless, they crucified Christ, they haven't repented, and they were cast away, and now it's the church. All right, so the church is the bride of Christ. Now, let's have, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5. And knowing that we are the bride of Christ, what effect does that have on us? Let's have Ephesians 5, 22 through 29 read. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, 
so that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes, nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. All right. In Revelation 21, we learn that the church is the bride of Christ. And here we learn, see that Christ died for the church. He gave himself up. He was crucified for the church, paying for her sins. And so wives are told in this passage to submit to their husbands just as to the Lord and that Christ is the head of the church and he's the savior and then the husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so Christ purchased the church with his own blood and then we see that he sanctifies her cleanses her, cherishes her and nourishes her so using these ideas Peter is going to give some instructions here to husbands and wives. Now remember, they're under persecution. That's no reason for them not to still live their family lives right. So that's the framework for what Peter is going to talk about here. Any questions or comments on anything I've said so far? If not, we are going to go to 1 Peter chapter 3. And we are going to have our passage for today read to us by Jill. So Jill, whenever you're ready, let's have 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you are good and, not, and are not afraid with any terror. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. This is so easy to do, I don't even need to teach, right? Yeah. <laughs> No, you're not going to get out of it. That is... <laughs> okay. We all know this. Let's just socialize the rest of the hour, right? <clears throat> all right. Now, these last two passages that we have had read, Ephesians 5 and 1 Peter 3, if we could all do this, we would. there would be no divorce at all in the church. This is wonderful counseling for any Christians that are having any kind of marital trouble. God created us. God knows what makes us tick, so to speak. God tells us in these two passages exactly how husbands and wives are supposed to do it. And it is hated by the world. 
You can go out into society and say, look, you wives, you're supposed to be subject to your own husbands. Even calling them Lord. Now, you wouldn't last very long. <laughs> but uh, like I said, the ways of the world collide with the ways of God. You have a collision of worldviews. God has a completely different view of marriage than the world does. And of course, God's is right. I'm preaching to the choir, but it actually goes back to origins. Right. Creation versus evolution. Man was made first. You are absolutely right, and it's what we have following up on what you said. Only a Christian can justify marriage. Ask a non-Christian, why do you get married? You're not going to get a very good answer. I don't know. That's what everybody does. But we do it because God in the garden, as a creation ordinance, uh, ordained marriage. And so we can justify the reason we get married. <clears throat> All right, in your notes, Peter now addresses households and he tells wives to be submissive to their own husbands. Notice his own husbands. They don't have to be submissive to men in general, but they are to be submissive to their own husbands. And in particular, he is addressing those wives with unbelieving husbands. Now, <clears throat> I don't know if any of you ladies in here have ever lived with an unbelieving husband or not. Well, man started out that way. But it can be really tough. It's really... So here we have women that are living with husbands that are unbelievers that probably make fun of their faith in a culture that persecutes them to begin with. So it's really tough. But Peter doesn't say, that's okay, that's okay. God understands you don't have to do too much. No. He doesn't say that. Peter teaches here that having a bad husband is not an excuse for being a bad wife. God has told, is, I'm going to tell you here what God's prescription is, what you're supposed to do in that kind of situation. Alright, these husbands have been exposed to the word. They're unbelieving. They've been exposed to the word. But the text here says, even if some do not obey the word. So they've been exposed to it. They've been evangelized and they have rejected it. So, these wives are to continue doing good even under bad circumstances. A wife's behavior still may win their husbands to Christ. And the idea is, he is in effect prescribing good behavior instead of preaching to them. He's saying, you wives, if you have a husband that doesn't believe, there's no reason to continue to preach to them. <clears throat> you live a good life. That's the way to bring them to Christ. So they are to subject themselves 
Verse 1 says you subject yourselves to your own husbands. And the second bullet there is have respectful and pure conduct. He says that they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. And the third one, have adornment from within with a gentle and quiet spirit. This is how you are to act. And who knows, you may win your husband over. This is the way God says to do it. He says without a word. Actions speak louder than words, as the old saying goes. All right, these pagan husbands have rejected the words spoken, and now they are to see the world words, excuse me, lived through their wives. They've rejected the words spoken. Maybe they will not reject the word lived when they see it in action. All right, to understand this passage better, we've got to consider the environment they lived in. Um, <clears throat> when we read verses 3 and 4, Peter tells them, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with an imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's eyes, God's sight is very precious. Okay? Um, several cults and pagan philosophies could very easily have had an effect <coughs> on these women in, in this culture. Um, there was the God, the Artemis of the Ephesians, and according to this God, the braiding of hair along with bright clothes was important. Women should really stand out physically, aesthetically. Women should really stand out. And this Artemis, it was very influential cult of the time. And also they had a cult called Isis. I-S-I-S, -I -S, Isis where they really pushed hard for the braiding of hair along with bright clothes, just like Artemis of Ephesus. So there was a lot of cultural pressure, a lot of peer pressure, you might say, for these women to look that way. There's nothing wrong with doing that. I mean, I'm not saying that. But it's what it is. is it's what really counts. It's what the women should count on is that gentle and quiet, peaceable spirit. Don't count on these out, the outward show to win your husband. Bill? Yeah. I've got a question on verse 3 there. In the NASB it says, your adornment must not be merely external, but merely as in italics. So you just, you just said that you know, those things are okay. Is that is that like some kind of political uh, word they put in there? 
merely well, external? Um, or is it indicated I, somehow? I think, uh, let's see how the ESV does it. Yeah, the ESV doesn't put that. It just says, let, do not let your adorning be external. Okay. Um, it could be, it could be, but most of the commentators take it the way the New American Standard Bible right. does that. Okay. I mean, um, Abraham's wife was beautiful. I, I don't see anywhere else in the scriptures where those kind of things are, are to be rejected but you're supposed to have a certain attitude toward them. That's the best I can do. You just have a certain attitude toward them. I mean, there's nothing wrong with a woman looking nice. Years ago, when I was a new, new Christian, my first pastor was a Baptist, and he said, well, if the bar needs paint, paint it. That was his line. I go along with New American Standard Bible translators on there. Um, but I'm not that dogmatic about it. I mean, I think women should look good, but they shouldn't depend on their good looks. That's not what it's all about. It's a gentle and quiet spirit. All right, so they had this peer pressure of really... <clears throat> you know, beautifying themselves. And Peter says that's relying on the wrong thing. All right, verse 5 reads, uh, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. So Peter uses an example of Sarah here where he says um, in verse 6, As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. How many of you ladies call your husband's Lord? <laughs> that could also be translated as master. The idea is you respect them. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Alright, so Peter uses here an example of Sarah as a godly wife. She had the qualities prescribed in the first four verses that Peter's been talking about. She possessed those qualities, and she also called him Lord or Master. That is in Genesis 18, 12, uh, showing submission and respect. All right, and in a few minutes, we'll get to husbands. Um, you husbands aren't off the hook. Your, your time's coming, okay? <laughs> All right. I want to read a couple of things here. I want to hear, read something Jay Adams wrote in his practical commentary on First Peter called Trust and Obey. And he says about these verses, and I'm quoting him, the crucial fact is that, the, that no wife needs sit sulfur and sulk. Submission is not passive, but it's active. She seeks to win her husband to Christ. The word win is a military term. She is to declare war on her husband and attempt to take him captive for Christ. 
But the weapons she uses are to be obedience, respect, gentleness, and quietness. And her basic strategy is to overcome his evil by doing good. Such submission is not doormatism. It is aggressive, violent submission bent on defeating evil by doing good. No Christian wife needs sit still, having nothing to do about the situation. God has given battle orders. To sit in self-pity is sin. So that's Jay Adams' view of that, and you're not going to find a better counselor than Jay Adams. And I want to point out another example of this. Uh, Peter gives a biblical example of Sarah. There is a non-biblical example that is very famous, the mother of St. Augustine, Monica. She had an unbelieving, abusive husband. And according to the to confessions that St. Augustine wrote, I think this is this century, um, she says, um, Augustine describes the faithful witness of his Christian mother, Monica, to his pagan father, Patricius, said, and quoting from Confessions, says, she served her husband as a master and did all she could to win him for you. This is a prayer talking to God. Speaking to him of you by her conduct, by which you made her beautiful. Finally, when her husband was at the end of his earthly span, she gained him for you. Now, Monica, Augusta's mother, she was a prayer warrior. She prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed for her son. And he finally came to Christ. And from that, Augustine is saying that she prayed and prayed and prayed for her husband and just lived a godly life before him. And he came to Christ according to what St. Augustine said. So that's a good non-biblical example. And of course you should pray for your husband anyway, um, even if he's a believer, because he needs it. <laughs> All right, any, any comments on that? All right. Now it's the husband's turn. <laughs> I know you wise have been sitting very patiently waiting for this, but here it comes. Okay, um, I'm going to read verse 7 again. Likewise, husbands, they're a little interpretive here in the ESV. Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. All right, as husbands live. Do you have the refreshed ASV with you, Charles? Okay. Um, I don't have my Greek Testament with me, but it's something to the fact. Live with them with understanding or with knowledge, literally knowledge. Gnosis is the, or gnosis is the word. And so we're to live we are to live with our wives with knowledge. And the idea is that is in an understanding way. Okay, so 
in your notes. Peter next gives, an, gives instruction to believing husbands. He starts with the word likewise or in the same manner. He's talking about submission here. So he says, likewise, you husbands, this is the way you're to be submissive. That's the idea behind that. So this is the way husbands submit to their wives, according to your notes. They are to live with them, says um, husbands, live with your wives with knowledge. Live with them. And they are supposed to understand them or know them. Live with them in an understanding way. And they're supposed to honor them. We are to show honor to the woman or to the wife as the weaker vessel. Woman and wife is the same word in Greek. Okay, all right. In order to do this, they are going to need to actually study them. Several commentators made this comment. <clears throat> if we're going to do this, we're going to need to study our wives a little bit. Find out about them. Find out what they need. Find out what hurts them. Find out what helps them. So we, as husbands, have a duty to learn our wives. To learn our wives. And, of course, this will take a little bit of work to know them well enough to understand them and honor them in a biblical way. Uh, now, wives are referred to as the weaker vessels. And I believe that those commentators are right when they say the most, most likely refers to physicality. It doesn't indicate moral or spiritual or mental inferiority. It seems to refer to the physical inferiority, not as strong. They need to be taken care of. They need to be protected. Of course, with some of those lot, those women I see up at the wild working out in beast mode, I need them to protect me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, one paraphrase translation has it: uh, she isn't as strong as you are. Yeah. As opposed to weaker. That's the idea. Unless they're in beast mode, right? Right. Beast. <laughs> Alright, this indicates they need care and she is to be treated with honor and care. And continuing in your notes here, they are heirs together of the grace of life. And this goes back to the garden as Kim pointed out earlier in the lesson today. They're the same as Adam and Eve would have been confirmed in their righteousness if they would have obeyed God instead of partaking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were together. They were in a blessed estate and they, if they would have been confirmed in their righteousness, they would have continued in that <clears throat> blessed estate being heirs together by the grace of life. So the proper relationship is now restored in Christ. We as Christian husbands and wives, the proper relationship 
has been restored in Christ. So Christians and only Christians are heirs together of the grace of life. Our relationship has been restored to what it is supposed to be. Unbelievers don't know what their marriage is supposed to be like. They're not heirs together of the grace of life. They're heirs together of the grace of death. Or the curse of death, rather. All right, if a husband does not honor his wife, back to your notes, why should he expect God to honor his prayers? Jay Adams asked that question. That's a good question. So this is a relationship that is very important in God's sight, as we have read in Ephesians 5. Husbands should take it very seriously, just like wives, and work seriously at it. Work diligently. Because disobedience, especially this, will prevent effective prayer. Okay, anybody want to add anything to this? That's where my notes run out, so that's where we will stop. So, marriage is a beautiful thing to the Christian. That doesn't mean everybody's called to be married, but we do have a beautiful institution. Okay, let's say a vow. We're going to close us in prayer today. Holy Father, God, we thank you for this opportunity to gather as your people.